It was two years after they found her body. Nobody had come forward to identify this little girl. She was about four or five years old. No one was exactly sure. She was the unnamed victim of a vicious murder. And the only family that ever claimed her were the detectives from the NYPD's 34th Precinct, the 3-4. And on this day in July of 1993, these investigators from the NYPD did something they never imagined they would. It's not something you can train for, not really something you can prepare for, but on this day, these detectives came together working with the clergy of a local church in the Washington Heights section of Manhattan, and they buried that little girl, the victim of a crime they were investigating. They didn't know her name, they just wanted to solve her murder. They called her Baby Hope. I'm Dan Bowens, and this is The Tape Room. On this episode, a conversation with the creators of the NYPD's brand new true crime podcast, Break in the Case. The new true crime series from the largest police force in the country, and the first case featured is the Baby Hope murder investigation. A mystery for more than 22 years, eventually solved because of a tip from the public. We spoke with one of the creators of Break in the Case, Ed Conlon, a retired NYPD detective who became a best-selling author, now back with the department. It is such an interesting podcast, and because it's such a compelling case, and here we are, the summer of 1991, shadow of the George Washington Bridge, in Wood Park, and there's this discovery. Can you, can you set the scene for me here? Yeah, uh, three construction workers who were working on the Henry Hudson Bridge saw a cooler in the woods, a blue and white cooler, and they went down to investigate and found the body of a little girl inside. They didn't know it was a little girl at first. The detectives didn't know either. That They had to, uh, after an autopsy, uh, it was determined that she was a very small little girl, um, 30, uh, 30 pounds, 25 to 30 pounds, just over three feet tall. Uh, and it was a mystery that stayed a mystery for over 22 years. Uh, her name wasn't known until 2013, but in the meantime, detectives called her Baby Hope. And this part of the city is not like any other parts of the city, and Inwood Park is not like other parks in the city. This is, this is a very sort of, it's a different part of what New York City it's it's not Central Park it. people don't really travel to go there maybe they have a softball league or something like that but no it's out of the way it's and it's pretty it looks like the forest there it's a really big park about 200 acres and a lot of it is the the, the old forest of back in the days when uh, you know before Manhattan was a city so it feels very out of the way and this was right away to the officers who were involved and these construction workers, this was a gruesome 
situation extremely that they come gruesome, on. really really gruesome and and especially even at the time where you know we were had over 2,000 murders a year in New York City and Washington Heights was probably the most violent part of New York City uh, uh, baby hope was homicide number 79 for the precinct that year just for the precinct just for the precinct they had 122 murders that year just in that neighborhood so when they had the for detectives especially when they had that volume of work uh, somebody getting killed every three or four days a couple of people getting shot every day to be able to, to force themselves to just really concentrate on this one case and stay with it for all those years is a pretty extraordinary story and it's that's one of the reasons why we decided to tell it and when you are telling this story you're going back and you're finding these people who were there in the beginning. I mean, you even found one of the construction workers who actually found the body. I did, and, and that had a, a huge impact on his life. He talks about it as if it was yesterday. It's really raw and really uh, powerful the way he talks about it. And some people were harder to find than others. Uh, Joe Resnick, who was the squad commander in the 3-4, he's still in the, in the building, so it was easy to get a hold of him. Uh, Jerry Giorgio, who's another one of the detectives who had it, uh, we lost him uh, last year, uh, but he was such a, a celebrated guy that we were able to uh, find enough video and find enough interviews that uh, people got to, got to hear what he sounded like. And you're even going back and finding some of the first officers who were there who responded. The first officer who had the walk down and he told this story where he says, in this part of Washington Heights, he wasn't sure if it was a body because they also, it could have been an animal or something like that because this was an area of the city where people did have all kinds of different uh, foods and all kinds of different things. He wasn't sure what this was at first. Yeah, he had that, to was, be that sure. was Sean Kenny, you know, and uh, when people stay in the area, it's, it's, it's easier to find them. Uh, but these, you know, that this is, these are the police reports, the DD-5s, the detective, uh, basic detective reports that has all that information. So we, we have a, a, a pretty good uh, launching pad to, to find out what happened to people afterwards. And when you're introduced to these characters in the podcast, I say characters, but they're, they're not characters. I mean, construction workers, and these are officers, these are detectives. This is the, the, the desk commander who as well knows that this is going to be immediately a, a, a big deal. They knew right away that this they was, knew. This was knew. a big deal. It, it, it involved the child, and so that's always going to connect with the public. And you really hear in the podcast, Breaking the Case, the humanity in these officers as they're, they're working it. It's not, not something people on the outside see a lot of, a lot of the time. Uh, they don't. They don't. And, and Joe Neenan, he's he was the original case detective from the 3-4. When they talk about it, uh, they talk about their own children. I mean, how uh, they're working, why they, it's part of why they work so as hard as they did. And obviously it was their job to do their, to find out who was responsible. But it went well beyond that. Uh, Jerry, Jerry Giorgio kept on working on it long after he retired. Joe Resnick was a lieutenant then and became a captain and deputy inspector and all the way up through deputy commissioner. He never let it go. These guys were going to the cemetery on their own time. And one of the interesting and hard to believe things in this case is there was no missing persons report for this little girl 
and no family had come forward. That made it extremely difficult from the start. It, it made it very hard to figure out what exactly had happened. Uh, ordinarily, you know, that's why that was what we look at. When they, when they were early in the investigation, they were getting calls from all over the country saying maybe that kid is our kid. We had a, a four-year-old who disappeared in Kentucky or Texas or Toronto. They had all these unsolved cases that they didn't know the ending of their stories. We only had the ending. We were hoping that maybe it would connect. It, they couldn't believe that nobody w was missing this kid. How difficult is it then if you don't have any of that stuff to go by, especially back then because there was no DNA, there weren't these sort of social media databases. How, how difficult was it then to sort of move forward from there? It was very hard. There was, there was nothing in the way of evidence. Uh, DNA did exist, but there was no DNA database. Uh, the whole digital world was yet to come, so you know, r records were on paper. You had to look for a file, a physical file, somewhere in a cabinet. You couldn't find things out the way the way you could. So um, it was it was in a case that the technology available might as well it might as well have been 1969 or 1959 for the most part in terms of what assets the uh, the detectives had to to track it down. And the detectives and the the people working on it, they named this little girl? They named her Baby Hope. Why did they name her Baby Hope? Well, I asked the same question, and it's one of these things where it, it, it's just sort of suddenly there. I mean, Joe Resnick didn't even know. He's, he figured Jerry Giorgio did, and maybe Joe Neenan, but Joe Neenan told me it was a, a sergeant named Bob Moss who just didn't want them to be, to refer to, to the victim as the cooler kid. It just stuck and it stayed with it, and uh, it was the right name. And there was a huge reaction to this. There was this sketch that initially came out that there was a lot of, were they going to use it? Were they not going to use it? Because the sketch came back in it. It was a, it was a shocking image. Where can you describe that? Yeah, of, of she, what happened well, there with this was, part of the story? It, it, well, the sketch was created by a, an extremely highly regarded forensic artist, NYPD artist named Frank Domingo. Uh, but there was just something in the look in her expression, it was kind of scary. She had, she was staring. She had these gaunt cheeks and, and big teeth. Now she looked like that, uh, but that was sort of what Resnick was really behind was was keeping the public engaged, making the connection uh, uh, with the public that there was something in the sketch that didn't seem right. So they went and got other sketches. They kept on, they kept on trying to see give a sense of what this girl was, not just in the visual, but kind of to make an emotional connection as well. And that's one of the elements that you get in this podcast that's unique coming from a police department, especially a police department like the NYPD, the largest police force in the country, that you see these detectives, they know how to keep the case in the headlines, especially in a big city like New York, where no matter how big the crime is, eventually it'll fade away. And you see inside how the detectives sort of struggle with this and have to deal with this. That's right. You know, in New York, obviously, it's, it's an asset. Being in a city like New York, where there's a media capital, being in a department like the NYPD, where we have, you know, thousands of detectives working on a case, the resources are there. 
Um, and they just, and they got the story out there. I mean, a year or two in, half the country must have known who she was or that heard of Baby Hope, but uh, we weren't any closer to solving it at that point. And it must, and the media was great. I mean, they, there was story after story about her, but we just weren't getting the information we need, we needed, and it was very, very frustrating. Uh, uh, and I really admire the hell out of those guys for sticking to it, uh, because it, it was it was 22 years before, after having told the story for the 10,000th time, it somebody the right person heard it and, and called in that tip. And that was decades, two decades later. Get to that in a second. What do you think is the benefit, because here we are telling the story again, right. of telling it in this way, in a podcast form, so people can get that sense of, oh, that's how they kept the story in the headline, that's how it was on 60 Minutes, that's how it ended up here. What do you think the benefit is to the public to get that sort of behind-the-scene glimpse? Well, it, 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 shows, it shows the public how we do things, it shows them why we do things. And I think most importantly in this case, it, it shows how we need them to finish the job sometimes. That was, that was what happened in Baby Hope. It's complicated too, it's a complicated relationship with the media because even in this case you heard one of the officers say as he's changing his clothes a reporter is standing yeah. right behind yeah. him. So there is this sort of delicate dance that a police department has to play with uh, with media organizations not to give too much away but to sort of drop these morsels along the way if the case starts to fade and, and go cold and you hear them even talking about that oh sure sure that, that's joe rizzo the construction worker by the way but it, uh, but uh, yeah it, in this case especially there was a, there was an absolute dependence on the media to get the word out uh, and 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 just because there wasn't there was the, uh, there weren't the usual frictions between the government and the media where they have different responsibilities, this was everybody wanted the same thing. In this case, there wasn't the potential for friction or conflict that that happens in in, in a lot of the other work we do. And for you personally, you worked in the force for 17 years, left, and have have come back. Why did you come back to the department a, a couple of years ago, just in, in the last two or three years that you came back to the department after, after working a, a 17 years in the, on the force? Well, I was a writer before I became a cop, then I became a cop and wrote about being a cop, then I left and wrote a novel about a cop, and then I finished it and was looking for a job, and the police department took me back. And along the way, you did also have successful other media ventures as well. Can you talk about that just yeah. uh, just a little bit? I mean, those I, are those are big deals. A lot of people probably know about. Yeah, when I when <laughs> I first started, I, I'd written for the New Yorker before I became a cop, and they asked me to keep writing about it, and that became a, a series of, of of articles called Cop Diary. And I didn't write them under my own name. I was new, and I didn't want the cops who I was working with to think I was I did this job for a story. And uh, those articles became a book called Blue Blood. Uh, which came out 2004, and that did well. Uh, another novel that came out uh, called Red on Red that came out just when I was finishing, and when, when I retired, I guess I wasn't finishing, in 2011. And then I wrote a book uh, uh, about a policewoman, a friend of mine, in fact, uh, 
called the Police Women's Bureau, and it's about a woman named Marie Cyril who was on from the 50s through the 70s. And she was an amazing lady. She got uh, in her first shootout when she was seven months pregnant, and uh, did a lot of exciting things. And it's a very strange time, or it's, it's a very distant time from 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 now. And at some point in the last year or so, the department decided to give you a new job, and yeah. that was producing this podcast. Why did the NYPD want to make a podcast, a true crime podcast? Well, I, I, I <clears> came <throat> back and I started writing for the website these longer stories uh, about hostage negotiations. I did one on the Forster and Lurie case for two cops killed in, in the early 70s. I, I, I found a guy, the last high constable of New York City was a guy named Jacob Hayes, and his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson worked here. Wow. Uh, but people weren't going to the website to read stories. It, it, it just people were going there for civil service information and traffic advisories and so forth. They weren't going to read six thousand words about the last high constable of New York City. So Jill and I were talking about uh, doing podcasting, uh, and it's you know it's it's a big department with a lot of rules. So we were talking about different ways of doing it, and you've got to get approvals here and endorsements there, and. Uh, uh, you know, a couple months in, we figured true crime, just because we know it, and we have, we, we're never going to run out of stories, and it's, it's really the way to, to reach people. People care about stories. There, you can release all the statistics you want, uh, it, it, it's just not going to sink in in the same way that, that a real story will. Why do you think it's, why do you think that these type of stories and to tell them in the long form, how, how does that benefit the department, would you say? Well, in, uh, in, in Monique, the story coming up, that is a story where we need the public's help in solving the crime. And Baby Hope was a story where that happened. So it, it's, you know, we can do press conferences, we, you know, we, can, we can do all out media blitzes, we can hand out flyers. But it's just not going to connect with people, I think, in the same way that a story does. And back to our Baby Hope story, you get a sense in this, there's only two episodes that have come out so far, there will be eventually five episodes, but in the second episode you really get this sense of there's a moment where the same connection that maybe the whole podcast is trying to get across where it actually happens, where the officers decide that maybe we should bury Baby Hope. How did that decision come about and, and what, what happened there? Well, that was, that, was, that was two years in into the investigation and uh, they're really at a loss what to do. Uh, and uh, you know, the body was at the morgue. It was about the right thing to do to give her a burial. And uh, I, I think uh, Joe Resnick knew that was also a way to get the case back in the papers. So. Two, good, two kinds of good thing were done. And when that happened, there was this moment that it, it seemed like, even in the midst of a lot of contentious relationships between the police department and the community during this time in the, in the, in the early 90s, there was a moment where there was this connection, where there was a huge outpouring of public support and there were officers who were paying for the funeral and paying for her 
gown that she was she was buried in. There was this moment that oh, happened. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Father Gonzalez, we talked to him, Father Gonzalez from St. Elizabeth's uh, said the funeral mass, and he, he talked about how meaningful it was, especially in Washington Heights in the early 90s, but it was such a violent time uh, where uh, cops and the community were in the church together, kneeling and praying for the same thing. He said it was a really important moment for, for, for the community. And yet, here we have this unknown girl who'd been, eventually they find out, had been sexually assaulted, who family still hasn't come forward, and then the case really does go cold for 20 years or so. And it's what happens next that, that, that changes everything. It did, yeah. They, uh, they uh, on the 21st anniversary, a new detective, Bobby Dewhurst, got it from Bobby Dew in the Cole case. And he, things fell together, he worked very hard, but things fell together in, 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 a, in a number of ways. Uh, other people who knew the story, who knew Jerry Giorgio, who knew Joe Resnick, really called in a lot of favors and put a lot of work into making this all out media offensive, just saturating the neighborhood in Washington Heights, talking to people, putting up posters, the Crime Stoppers van uh, uh, driving around, bilingual messages. It got, it got a lot of attention, especially Spanish media attention, and that's what led to the tip. Somebody, somebody heard the story, and they remembered something that somebody else had told them years before. And then just that very accidental bit of not entirely accurate information, it turned out, but that's what broke the whole thing open. And I don't want to give too much of it away because people should listen to the podcast and sort of see how this journey comes about, but there is eventually an arrest. Um, when an officer or a department is able to solve a case like this after so long that had been so high profile, and you've talked to some of the people who've been on that side of it. What did that feel like for them, if you can try to surmise how, I, it how was, they're feeling? It, it, it was exhilarating, uh, and some of them couldn't even really believe it. It was, it had been so many years, and everything that could be done had been done. It really, it really didn't make sense for things to turn out differently when they'd done it already over and over and over again. Why should people care in two thir 2013 if they hadn't in 2011 or 2001 or 1991. Why do, should it be different? You had to keep going. You had to keep doing it. But some of, some of them were almost disbelieving themselves that it actually worked in the end. The first season of Break in the Case also features the story of an unsolved murder of a woman in Brooklyn, her dismembered body parts washing ashore. The final episodes from another member of the team, Kenzie Delaney, focus on the Larry Davis case, the man involved in the shooting of six NYPD officers. A final note here, break in the case was developed by the NYPD in partnership with the New York City Police Foundation. All of the costs were covered by the foundation. It is an independent nonprofit organization. Among other initiatives, it helps pay for Crime Stoppers.
The Tape Room is part of the Fox 5 Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dan Bowens. This episode was recorded, edited, and mixed by Matt Onimus. Our executive producers are myself, Matt Onimus, and Ahmad Asgar. Byron Harmon is vice president of Fox 5 News, and Lou Leone is vice president and general manager. And you can always find us on our Facebook or Instagram page. You can search at The Tape Room Podcast, all one word. And if you think you have a case that you believe we should explore, email us at thetaperoompodcast at foxtv.com. Stay tuned for the next episode of The Tape Room. <laughs>